We read the word of the Lord this morning in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. We'll be reading the whole of the chapter, but our focus will be in particular on the first six verses, the vision that the Lord gives John to see of the binding of our ancient enemy, the devil, for a period of 1,000 years. It's on page 1936 in the Pew Bibles, page 1936. Revelation chapter 20, let us listen now to this word the Lord speaks to us. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have parted the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. May the Lord bless this reading and our hearing of his word this morning. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I would not be telling the truth if I were to say that we preachers have a tendency to shy away from the book of Revelation. I was told before the service that your men's Bible study is making its way through the book from uh, time of meeting to time of meeting. And I was also gladdened to hear that they hadn't yet come to chapter 20, but we do shy away from it. I confess that I have scarcely ever preached. This is the second time in some 30 plus years of the ministry that I've looked at Revelation 20 with a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ in preaching on the Lord's Day. 
And yet I think that's an unfortunate truth. The book of Revelation is not a puzzle, like one of these puzzles you might buy, 500, maybe 1,000 pieces strewn about on the table, and you don't know what goes with what. They just all lie there like little pieces having no connection one with another. By the way, it's a great help when you put together one of those big puzzles to have the picture in its full and complete measure. And there's a sense in which the book of Revelation was given to God's people to reveal, to make known what would otherwise be unknown. As a matter of fact, to be a clear representation of what's transpiring in history. And don't you want to know? You don't want to read the Times, the New York Times, or the Washington Post, and I don't think being a reader of the Chicago Tribune, you're going to get a proper representation. I may change the analogy. You may, you may have been a person who once upon a time looked at one of these three-dimensional figures where there's a pattern that isn't immediately visible, but you have to bring it into focus, and then it comes to the foreground. Well, I would like to suggest to you that the whole book of Revelation and all of its parts wants you to see in the midst of history and in the context of the raging of the nations and opposition often to the cause of Christ and his coming kingdom, you're to see, as one author puts it in a book he wrote, a great book on the book of Revelation, the triumph of the Lamb the lamb who is also the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the one who triumphs. He will ultimately vanquish his and his people's enemies. The word of testimony concerning him and his blood shed, whereby he purchased a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, a people without number, that will without fail proved to be the case. Not only will the lamb triumph, but the flock, the blood-purchased bride of Christ, she too will triumph. God's cause will unfailingly, by Christ and in the power of the Spirit, who is the Spirit of witness, will bring about God's gracious purpose to redeem his people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The book was given to give God's people a clear perspective, a distinct focus that undergirds, that surrounds, that supports like a solid foundation under their feet in their entire life as God's people. And that's true also of the vision that is before us of this 1,000-year reign and rule of Christ among the nations until there's a little season just prior to the end when God will permit God's people's great enemy a micro, literally that's what the text uses when it says a little season, it uses the Greek word micron, 
a micro moment of leading the nations in rebellion only to be undoubtedly and ultimately utterly vanquished by the Christ, the Lamb, the Lion from the tribe of Judah. Now we see that in this vision in Revelation 20 in two ways. First of all, in the vision that John is given of the binding of Satan for 1,000 years. And then secondly, in verses 4 through 6, in the vision John is given of those who triumph even though they die for Christ's cause. First of all, the vision of the binding of Satan for 1,000 years. We read in verse 1, and I saw. John is given a vision that represents what God is wishing to disclose to his people. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. Notice the direction. This angel is a messenger servant of the one who sits upon the throne. Heaven in the book of Revelation is the true seat that lies behind and whose purposes will unfailingly be accomplished in history. Our problem is we too often walk by sight. What's in front of our nose gets our attention. The book of Revelation wants us to see the throne room. Not Washington, D.C., not the Kremlin, if there still is such a thing, Moscow, wherever the reign of the Russian nation has its seat of power. No earthly throne room, but from heaven in God's name and with Christ's authority, this angel descends to the earth, which is God's footstool in the book of Revelation and in the scriptures. It's the arena, history, within which God's purposes unfailingly are accomplished. And it's very striking the way this vision unfolds. We're not given any sort of suggestion that there was, though in the book of Revelation that language is often employed of a great struggle. No, he's sent to do something in particular. He has in his hand the key to the abusos the place of the residence of the demons, a lower place, and holds in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, as soon as you read in the book of Revelation and in the word of God, language like the dragon. You immediately think of chapter 12 where the dragon drenched in blood, that ancient serpent, you're brought all the way back to the garden where God sets an enmity, an antithesis between the seed of the woman, his holy bride, the church, the seed of those whom he has chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. He sets an opposition between that seed and the seed of the serpent, the deceiver, the arch enemy of God and his people, the one who rages in opposition to God's coming kingdom and is relentless in his efforts to accuse the church 
and God's people. To bring accusation against them. To destroy and devour the child of the Lamb. You have that great portrait which represents the moment of the incarnation. The seed is come in and through whom all the families of the earth will find blessing. Namely, God the Son become man and he seeks to devour the child. And so you're immediately recognizing that we're talking about something that is done with respect to the father of lies. His business is to distort the truth, to deny the testimony of God's people in the name of the God who is the God of the Amen, the faithful and true. He's a liar, a deceiver. He tries to captivate, bring under his tyranny in opposition to God and his Christ the nations and peoples of the earth and has done so from the beginning of redemptive history subsequent to the fall. And so what are we being told? This angel who comes down out of heaven having the key to the abyss, holding his hand a great chain, seizes that dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, the accuser, and binds him, bound him for a thousand years, throws him into the abyss, locks and seals it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And you know the imagery there of sealing in the gospel accounts of our Lord's entombment. The authorities were quite insistent that the tomb be sealed and a great stone be placed before it so that no one could enter and no one could exit. It's a symbol of the authorization by the appropriate authority that nothing can take place apart from his will. It is sealed. He's bound, thrown into the abyss. It's locked and sealed over him. And here's the main thing. I've written a lot on this particular passage in books. I've told you already I haven't preached much on it. And part of the reason I haven't preached months on it, I know myself too well. I'll get into the weeds real quick. I'll give you all kinds of different viewpoints and perspectives. Uh, and I'll lose you in the midst of all of that sort of uh, confusion. I don't want to lose you this morning. I want you to see one thing. And by the way, it's the only thing that John sees. What's the point? of the vision. It's that in the name of heaven, by the authority of God, according to his purposes in Christ, who alone has the power, we're told that already in the great vision of chapter 5, to break the seals, to govern, superintend, and order all of history and the life of the nations and the church within the nations, among the nations, to his good purpose. What has he done? He has bound the strong man. 
You know, in the Gospels, I was in chapel at Mid-America on Friday, and we had a lovely meditation by my colleague, Reverend Vanderhart. I told someone, you've got to get that one on the website. That was outstanding. The message was based on the account in Luke chapter 10. Before you get lost in all kinds of needless and unhelpful speculation regarding what this represents, Jesus tells us in the gospel what it represents. He sent out the 72, you remember that account? To in his name announce the coming of the kingdom and the healing of the nations. He came to seek and to save that which was lost and to manifest the kingdom's come and his power to forgive sins by healing giving sight to the blind, strength to walk to the lame, preaching good news to the poor, the lowly, the despised, not the high and mighty. Well, the 72, they go out, and they may not have been to seminary. They weren't perhaps uh, as good a preacher as Dr. Naderhood, by God's grace, was in his day. But they come back, and they say, it was a success. We witnessed and saw, and what does Christ say to them? He says, I saw Satan like lightning cast down out of heaven. As a matter of fact, you have in another passage in a different gospel in Matthew chapter 12, something very similar when Jesus goes about preaching the coming of the kingdom and healing those who are in need of healing, demonstrating the power and blessing of the kingdom come through and by him, the presence of the kingdom. And they marvel at this and they ask the question, how is this possible? And he says, well, you can't rob and plunder the strong man's household unless the strong man be bound. The very same verb that is employed in Revelation 20 to describe the binding of Satan. And what's the big point? The big point is with the birth of the child and his death upon the cross, the shedding of his blood and his triumph in the resurrection. The lamb who was slain become the lion of the tribe of Judah, now seated at the Father's right hand, exercising, as we're told at the end of Matthew's gospel, an authority, which is an authority in heaven as well as upon the earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing, teaching, baptizing into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now let me pause here for a moment. I don't think that we, sometimes in hearing that, recognize what a glorious moment we find ourselves in at this juncture in redemptive history. In the time between the times of Christ having come and his coming again at the end of the age. This is the season, remember Christmas? When the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. How Simeon celebrates the child's birth by saying a light for revelation 
to the Gentiles. Whereas God, in the course of history, in the working of his grace under the Old Testament economy, had focused and elected as his chosen servant the people of Israel from whom the seed would come and prove a blessing to all the families of the earth. Only that people were privileged to have the light of revelation, the gospel word, but not anymore. The church goes now to the nations in the confidence that they are no longer held in bondage, liable to the deception and the lie against the testimony concerning Jesus of his and his people's great arch enemy. Now, where you get into trouble with the vision is debates about people who have differing viewpoints about how that'll play out and what that means exactly for us and for the church prior to the time of Christ's coming. I'm leaving that to the side. What's good news in this is that the church in this present age, 1,000 years, I haven't even said anything about that, all I'll say is that in the language of Scripture, in the lingo, you might say, the idiom of the Word of God, this is not to be taken literally. We read the Ten Commandments this morning. A thousand generations. Is the Lord saying, well, when we get to the 1,000th first generation, literally counted, then God's love will never be shown to those who fear Him. Or when the psalmist says... There are, are, he owns, the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Okay, I can go to the hilly country and I count 1,000 hills and after I get to the 1,000 first, he doesn't own those hills. You understand. The idiom is, it's a number suggesting completion within the will and purpose of God. A great period. That's why the Lord can say, with him, a day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. In this period of history, Christ having come, ascended to the Father's right hand, given the authorization to break the seals and realize God's redemptive purpose in the gathering of the nations, nothing will stop him. from receiving every one of those in the Lamb's book of life whose life was purchased at the high cost of his own precious blood. And that should put, and it was the intention of this word of revelation to put wind in the sails of the early church. You may say, well, it's not going that well, Dr. Venom, in the world these days. You think it was going well when the book of Revelation was first given to the church? No opposition, no trouble along the way, no difficulty. Our circumstances, in many respects, far more glorious and exceptional than was theirs. 
But there's nothing. That's the point of the binding of Satan that will prevent Christ and the true and faithful testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ from reaping a rich harvest of a people without number from among all the tribes, tongues, and peoples of na and nations. Wow, that has some pretty significant implication for the church to continue to bear testimony, to call the nations to come to the light, to not become discouraged when there is any resistance or lingering unwillingness to come. We go out into the harvest field knowing that, as Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. That wasn't true, you know, 50 years ago, but now it's not true in this year of our Lord, 2020. And if you've ever had opportunity to pay attention to what the Lord is doing in the gathering of his people in the harvest field, you know the 20th century is an extraordinary century of Christian missions, continent of Africa, Asia, many parts. Think Korea, stubborn resistance still in Japan, but a foothold. No longer is Satan able to hold captive the nations and to resist the prosecution of the church's mission in the world. So church, do not be discouraged. Don't quit the battle. Don't silence your testimony. Don't huddle and hide. But there's one thing else, there's another thing that's given to us to see in this vision, and it's the second part of it in verses 4 through 6 where we're told John sees thrones. And thrones in the book of Revelation are in heaven, the place of God's dwelling, the dwelling of his Lamb, and the place beneath the altar, think Revelation 6, of deceased saints, often martyred saints, who cry out before the Lord that he come quickly and vindicate his cause and theirs among the nations. I saw thrones. And what does he see upon those thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge? They reign with Christ. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. This is a theme in the book of Revelation. That in the course of the church's testimony, there is great resistance still. But God's work will bear great fruit. But in the course of that resistance, not all, but some for the testimony of Jesus will even die, be beheaded, threatened with, as he goes on and puts it, called to worship the beast or his image, but had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They lived, literally the text says, it's usually translated, they came to life, but it literally says they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not live until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those 
who have part in the first resurrection. Now here again, as I mentioned to you earlier, I could easily be tempted to get myself into the weeds. What I want you to understand is what John here calls or is termed the first resurrection is first because what? It delivers from the power of the second death, which is spiritual. The kind of death where you eternally die are cast away from God's presence into the lake of fire. Never to enjoy communion with God, never to enjoy the second resurrection, if I may speak thus, we call the resurrection of the body. These are souls whom John sees in heaven. These are the saints in glory, dressed in white robes, some of whom have been martyred for Christ's cause, and yet they live. During this entire period of the gospel going to the nations, until that little season when God permits one last futile attempt to defeat and resist his kingdom. That what John has seen is what our Lord promised in John 11, where he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, what? Shall never die. He who believes in me will never die. You remember the gospel word that our Lord spoke once to his disciples? Fear not. Fear rather him who is able to destroy body and soul in hell. I heard a lovely choir concert this past week, and there was this line in one of the hymns that spoke beautifully of what is at the core of this vision. Our deathless life has been won. Like the lamb who was slain in apparent weakness and defeat, yet he lived. Nothing can touch God's deathless, in the sense of the power of the second death, saints. The worst they can do to them is physical death, martyrdom. But that's not the second death. Now let me just put a little concreteness on that. Do you recall a few years ago now when that company of brothers in the Lord were marched with masks over their heads, their hands bound behind their backs, Coptic Christians in Egypt, and their captors held them in one hand and had large knives in the other. I saw a documentary about this not too long ago. It was most powerful. When they were called to deny the testimony concerning the Lord Jesus to a man without exception, it's extraordinary, not one, no, not one denied the lamb, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And it cost them quite literally 
their heads. How can that be? What could possibly explain that? Well, they knew what John gave the church to know in this vision. The worst that could ever be done to one of Christ's faithful servants. The absolute worst. Their deathless life. Their inheritance in Christ. The promises of God's word sealed in the blood of Jesus. Nothing and no one has the power to snatch that out of their hands. No one may even have the power to snatch a single beloved lamb from the sure and certain grip of the lamb who was slain, who had power to take up his life, power to lay it down. And he laid it down. Do you think, says this vision, that he's going to lose a single one of them? No, not one. Again and again in the book of Revelation, all of those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. We've read about that at the very end of the chapter in the great day of judgment. Books are opened. Story is told. Those who are washed wearing white garments in the blood of the Lamb. Not a one of them is cast away into the lake of fire. And the question then becomes for us, not only does this vision give to us new courage as well as new fortitude not to be discouraged. I always say to the students, one of the loveliest things Paul ever said to his spiritual son, Timothy, is preach the word in season and out of season, but adding what? With great patience. Why? Because they're not giving up. They know that the Lord has appointed something weak, the testimony to Jesus to accomplish his certain purpose. Isn't that encouraging? I think God's people in our time, and particularly in the West and places like the United States, uh, we're, we're, we need the book of Revelation. Like the early church needed it. Like the church will always need it. To show us that Satan is bound, no longer able to deceive the nations and prevent Christ entering into his inheritance. And his people are the kind of people who know that their deathless life, won for them by Jesus' blood, will never be taken from them. The power of the second death has been utterly, the sting of death, to use Paul's language, has been removed. Amen. Our Father in heaven, help us to be reminded that the mission of the church bearing testimony to Jesus will, among the nations, bear great fruit according to your purpose. So may we be faithful and continue to bear that witness. Help us also to see that even in the worst of circumstances, nothing can steal from us that deathless life that you won for us 
by your own precious blood. Hear us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.